I mean, he would tell you, I had a silver spoon in my <laughs> mouth at birth and no intention of taking it out. <laughs> I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. I recently spoke to Beth Macy, and you'll hear how this acclaimed journalist's latest book is currently being negotiated for a film starring one of Hollywood's hottest leading men. And later in this episode, you'll hear from the general manager of R.J. Julia on just what it takes to work in a bookstore. And only for Just the Right Book listeners, we are giving away a copy of Beth's best-selling book, True Vine. Just rate and review us on iTunes to be entered to win. Beth Macy's last book, Factory Man, is a New York Times bestseller and now in development to become an HBO miniseries produced by, I think, Tom Hanks. We'll find out if all that's true. And her latest (laughs) book, True Vine, Two Brothers, A Kidnapping, and A Mother's Quest, A True Story of the Jim Crow South, is already generating film buzz. Beth, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's great to be here, Roxanne. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Well, my pleasure. So True Vine follows the story of two African-American albino brothers whisked away in the 1800s in childhood to be displayed as circus sideshow freaks. The saga of the brothers, George and Willie Muse, is even more enthralling than fiction. Beth, how did you come to tell this story that feels kind of lost to time and history? Yeah, kind of lost to time, but oddly somewhat relevant today as well, I think. I think so. Um, yeah, yeah, sadly. Um, so I I was a longtime newspaper reporter. Uh, I was 25 years reporting uh, for the Roanoke Times in Virginia. And um, my first book, Factory Man, grew out of some reporting I had done on the aftermath of globalization in some hard-hit factory towns. And then this book grew out of a story I wrote even earlier. When I first got to Roanoke, um, I was in my mid-20s. It was um, over 25 years ago. And a photographer pulled me aside, and, he, he, you know, they're always giving us story ideas, and he said, he told me about the story. He had grown up in, the, in town, and he had been growing up hearing about uh, this incredible story. One of the brothers was still alive, astonishingly. He lived to be 108, and so he said, you know, you should try to interview him. This is the best story in town, but no one's been able to get it. So... Um, the reason nobody had been able to get it is because the family sort of clamped down and um, was really protecting the brothers in their older age, and uh, particularly the caregiver of Willie Muse, who lived, the one who lived to be so old, um, was not having any of it. So the first time I waltzed into her restaurant, that she ran a little soul food restaurant in Roanoke, um, it was like early 1990s, and I, I, you know, I just kind of cluelessly went in and said, "Hi, I'm Beth Macy from the Roanoke Times. I'd love to do a story in your famous great uncles." She pointed to a sign that uh, a customer had stenciled for her, and it was on the wall, and the sign said, "Sit down and shut up," so, which was kind of funny, <laughs> but she really meant it. She meant it. She, she really meant it. They had been exploited their whole lives. And her goal in their retirement was sort of give them to give them back the childhood that had been taken from them. So Nancy Saunders, who you come to adore, I mean, I think the two women in the book, <laughs> Helen Muse, the parents of the boys, and Nancy Saunders, stand up as these kind of resilient, caretaking, bold, fantastic women. 
And yeah, do you think really you, tough women of their time. Yeah, you know? really. I mean, I admire them enormously. So was Nancy responding to the exploitation that the brothers had endured in their years in the circus? Or had there been press along the way? Because she was pretty yeah. distrustful of you. Yeah, she was very distrustful at first. And I wouldn't even say now, even though she likes me much better now and obviously trusted me enough to let me write this book, I wouldn't say now she trusts me all the way. And not until I delved into the research for this book, beginning, say, two years ago, did I really understand um, the way the press had treated the brothers and their mother when she got them back in 1927. I mean, there was a big brouhaha. Eight police officers came, and ringling lawyers came, and and Harriet Muse, an illiterate black maid in, in Roanoke, Virginia, stood up to them all. And not only that, she filed a lawsuit against the greatest show on earth, and, and she won a sizable settlement. So, um, but when you look at the way the press treated that, it, it made news all over the country, but no one ever interviewed the family. No one ever um, treated them with respect. No one ever even quoted them. And so when I later learned that some of Nancy's first memories were of people banging on their door demanding to see the, quote, savages that eat raw meat, unquote, I realized why she had had to develop this really, really tough exterior, especially where they were concerned. Take me back a little bit to exactly what happened with the brothers. So you've got these two little kids living in mm -hmm. Roanoke, Virginia. And Actually living in a little, uh, way smaller than Roanoke, Virginia, living in a tobacco-growing community about an hour south in rural Franklin County, which is sort of the tobacco-growing Piedmont area of southern Virginia. And this is around 1900. Um, when they were uh, uh, whisked off, um, the family always had said, and Uncle Willie himself said that he was kidnapped by a circus bounty hunter. And um, there are some there was some question about how they initially got with the circus, but there there's no disputing the fact that they were trafficked for 13 years. There's there's lots of evidence for that, um, and it was just a very poor, you know, sort of post slavery sharecropping existence where people were working in exchange, basically, for the little shacks that they were living in. Yeah, so that that brings me to, in the foreword to your book, um, you have a quote from W.E.B. Du Bois for the, the, that I'll take a moment to read. This is from his book, The Souls of Black Folk. For the first yeah. time, he sought to analyze the burden he bore upon his back that dead weight of social degradation partially masked between, behind a half-named Negro problem. He felt his poverty without a cent, without a home, without land, tools, or savings. He had entered into competition with rich, landed, skilled neighbors. To be a poor man is hard, but to be a poor race in a land of dollars, is the very bottom of hardships. Beth, what yeah. did you hope to accomplish writing this story? I hoped to give people more context for um, kind of where we are with race relations today in America. Um, I, of course, knew about segregated schools and separate schools and separate water fountains. 
I didn't know the way sharecroppers were treated. I didn't know just the daily humiliations that people in Roanoke, Virginia faced. Um, just the omnipresence, um, you know, they weren't allowed to vote unless they paid a poll tax and passed a certain ridiculous test. I mean, all the rights were stripped away when these Jim Crow, Jim Crow laws went into effect in the late 1890s. And so that quote, um, that, you, that beautiful quote you just read from Du Bois, uh, just resonated so much. There was, I, I was also trying to bring the land, uh, uh, the world of sharecroppers from True Vine to Life in the book. And just to interview uh, one of the women who had done it uh, her first 40 years of her life and had to drop out of school because they weren't able to go to school when the crop was in, um, she said she remembered hearing the story when she was a little girl about George and Willie being kidnapped, and she felt bad for them. But she also remembered the story with a touch of longing because she said, only in a place like True Vine, for some of us, could the notion of being kidnapped seem almost like an opportunity. Mm. And that that comment just just wowed me when I heard it. And then when I heard, uh, you know, just of what their lives were like and um, it sort of begged the question, were their lives, were George and Willie's lives better off out in the circus than, than their family's lives were back at home, you know? And I, I think that until we know this history, you know, history repeats itself. Yeah. And I think you're seeing a lot of those tensions coming out today. And um, now more than ever, I think we need to understand what's happened before. Well, and, you know, in reading the book, a couple of things occurred um to me, one is just learning the history and really having that resonate, ha- having ha- the way it adds to your understanding of what people who are descendants of families like that, like how they're, what's in their DNA, I think is informative and helps us all be more understanding and empathetic about the circumstances that these families lived in, not 500 years ago, but five minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and even even some of the relatives of the people, the older folks interviewed in the book have asked their older relatives, they said, is she sensationalizing these conditions? And uh, one older gentleman I just saw at a, at a book event in Richmond, Virginia last week said, yeah, my niece asked me that question. I had to say, no, ma'am, you grew up 35 years later than I did in New Jersey. And believe you me, it was very much the way she described it in, mm. in Virginia in the 50s and the 60s, um, you know, even as late as that. And so you write, I would, what, a lot of what I did is I would ride around town and ride around these communities with older people and they would see things and it would sort of spark their memories and um, you know just for for these these folks to be be carrying around these stories for so many years for their entire lives and and many of them told me like they said people aren't going to believe this like they said I try to tell my kids and grandkids and they, they think we're lying but one of them said you know ain't nobody making any of it up mm. and um, so I just Beth, think it's important to tell these stories why we can why we still can so one of the things that listening to that quote that you said about were they actually better off being kidnapped and being in the circus, were they better off? Well, I don't think they were better off in the beginning. I mean, the way they describe it and some of the photographic evidence holds this up. I don't know if you remember the picture of them when they're they're probably about 11 and 14. They're clearly children. They're clearly being 
exploited as child laborers. This is in an era before we had child rights laws and things like that. And they're wearing these suits that they're, they've been, they're, they're two sizes mm. too small because they've been wearing it for too long. And they just look scared to death. And Willie would talk about uh, in those early days, they were told to quit crying, your mother is dead. You know, so I, I think you. I think there's no way you could say they were better off. They missed their mother, and the the older brother, who was just three years older, had to be sort of like the father. They weren't allowed to go to school, so they never learned to read and write. I mean, you can't say they're better off for that. But once she found them in 1927 and demanded justice for her family, it really changed the course of the family's story. And um, they rejoined the circus in 1928, this time for pay, or, or supposed to be for pay anyways, because um, <laughs> they continually took advantage of them, and she would have to step in again. But they always said they, once they knew she was alive and they knew they could come home to see her on the off-season, um, they, they enjoyed it. It was really the only world they knew, and I I surmise in some of my writings or I'm extrapolating that I'm sure there was there was somewhat of the, the Stockholm syndrome was involved, you know, the way yeah. it's the only world they knew, so they were comfortable in it. And when they came home to Roanoke, Virginia, many people told me people would stare at them. One time somebody called the police and said there were savages loose in the park near their house. You know, because they looked different because of their hair and, and their skin color. And people just weren't used to that. And, you know, it was rough. And the fact that they at least did come back to their community ended up owning their own home, if I recall. Yes, which was pretty rare. When they retired in 1962, because of their mothers um, subverting the system at every turn and demanding that, that they get paid, um, against many odds, um, they were able to have a house all bought and paid for in their names when they retired, which was very unusual for African-American families in the early 1960s in Roanoke, Virginia. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have to, anybody listening, this book is, as I said, enthralling on so many levels. I mean, the story of the of the brothers, the story of the circus, the story of the South, in the early 1900s, the indomitable women. And I, I've i been a fan of yours, Beth. I read Factory Man in, in what's called a galley, meaning a copy mm-hmm. of the book before it was published. And to me, is one of the most important books that I've read in a long time. And, you know, to give it a quick summary, it is... Um, uh, the story of the Bassett family that owned, uh, actually owned a town, actually owned <laughs> <Yeah>. Bassett. <laughs> I mean, it was an... Owned everything in it except for the, the school. Yeah. I mean, it was an unincorporated mm. uh, community. But you use the story of John D. Bassett III to really talk about manufacturing in the United States, the impact of mm-hmm. globalization, uh, the impact of family businesses, the what it looked like to the employees that were generationally employed. And I think when we talk about globalization and manufacturing, you know, we use all these kind of vague anecdotal stories that half the time mm-hmm. are not true. But as Numbers this, and e- economics. Yeah. 
studies, and it's hard to get your head around at first. Uh, but but you do if you read Factory Man. I I think mm-hmm. that it it made me a better citizen. It makes it's it will make me pay attention and raise questions. Mm, thank you so much for saying that. When I when I wrote it or when I had the idea to write it, um, I wanted it to be because I'm not a business writer and I didn't really understand it myself. You know, I knew that all those factories had closed an hour south of Roanoke in Henry County, and I knew it had had the highest unemployment rate in the state for a dozen years. But I didn't really understand, like, the executives and the marketing people, they were all still working. They were just traveling to China and Vietnam to have their materials sourced. And um, I wanted it to be a book where, like, I could give to my mom, for instance, Mm -hmm. who, who used to work in a factory, and she would understand why her town, her factory town, looks the way it does now. Like, not through statistics or economist studies, exactly. but uh, through people. And, and John Bassett is such a fascinating character, warts and all, um, to get to tell that story through. Because he's the one, Bassett, who took on China in a court of international trade. And while all of his relatives were shuttering almost all of their factories in Bassett, Virginia. He took his his little company in Galax, Virginia, which is a tiny little town better known for bluegrass and barbecue, and John Bassett filed a lawsuit against the Chinese for improperly dumping their product in the American market with an effort to put Americans out of work and to capture our market share. And he won his case at the International Trade Commission. So it's a it's a great kind of hero story but, I mean, did he really win? He's still making furniture in Galax, Virginia with Vaughn Bassett Furniture. Um, but it's, it's a struggle. Yeah. And, um, and I really came out that book the same way I came out True Vaughn. I wanted to tell the stories of the people left behind. Like, what happens to a community when half of its jobs go away? Because it wasn't just the, the factories. You could count up all the factory jobs, and that was significant in textiles and furniture. But then all the little mom-and-pop diners, all the little stores that depended on factory workers spending their money. I mean, it was kind of a ghost town when I when I first started reporting from there. Um, and I really wanted to to find out what had happened to all those people. Well, I think, Beth, that's your gift. I mean, having read... Uh, both books. I think explaining history or business in the case of Bassett or Mm -hmm. the arc of a community or a family by talking about real people and real circumstances who are not idealistic. There are not the, the, the definition of heroes and villains is, of course, never black and white. And I think in both (laughs) your books, you manage yeah. to, you know, weave that nuance in a way that people can connect to because it feels real. You know, you're not painting, oh, this is the bad guy and this is the good guy. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I, I, I try to just, you know, I have to hew to the truth no matter what I find out. And I try to just Damn. cast my net. <laughs> I know. I try to cast my net as wide as I can, chase down as many of the little story tendrils as I can um, in both books. And, you know, that's going to reveal both difficult truths and, and 
pretty astonishingly amazing truth, yeah. too. So, I mean, the thing is to just tell a, as accurate as a picture and let the reader decide. But I always try to start with what moves me. And with the John D. Bassett story, it was just the fact that this guy who had been born a multimillionaire with a silver... I mean, he would tell you, I had a silver spoon in my <laughs> mouth at birth and no intention of taking it out, you know? And he will tell you that. And what what makes a man like that go against everybody China. else in his family <laughs> and say, uh-uh, the effing tricoms aren't going to tell me how to make furniture. And so the hair stood up on my neck the first time I heard that he had done that. And uh, and in the same way, the first time I heard about the story of George and Willie, I just thought, oh, my gosh, there's got to be so much more there to that story. And and. And, and that I can learn about this complex, just maze of, what do they call it, America's original sin, yeah. the way African Americans were treated in this country. And this is a new kind of way to talk about the aftermath of slavery and segregation and Jim Crow in a way that um, hopefully has um, resonance and relevance today. And is... Factory Man really going to be an HBO series? Well, it's been optioned by um, HBO and Tom Hanks's company, which is called Playtone, and it's been uh, the option's been renewed, and it's it's in quote development. Um, it's, it's kind of a slow process. Uh, I don't really have anything new to report. But um, I think it's uh, I think it's still on as far as I know. Boy, I think it would. So that be would be fabulous. exciting. I mean, I'm hoping like they see what's going on and the trade being bandied about every day in the news and say, hey, this is still a really timely story. Let's get on with it. Yeah, and I think you know John D. Bassett and his relatives and how that all worked. My goodness, it seems to me they could get years out of that. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he actually wrote his own book. Well, he you know he had a ghostwriter, but it was called um, Making in America, and it came out earlier this year. It was more a how-to primer for business people yeah. who might be looking to stay competitive with Asian imports. And it's it's his philosophy, and it's got a lot of, you know, kind of his cowboy grit and his country sayings, and it, it's real entertaining. Well, you know, it did crack me up when, in Factory Man, you realize that you had some factory owners who thought that they were too clever by half, and they let the Chinese come in and start videoing their factory yeah. processes. they taught thinking, them how to make it. <laughs> just really? Or do you really think they're not going to just, like, start manufacturing it for their own good? Right. Do you, do you remember one of the very first quotes in the book is a woman re- re- remembering that her mother, who was a longtime African-American black uh, furniture worker at Bassett Furniture, and she came home from work one day and she said to her daughter, Naomi, what were all them little people doing at work today? <laughs> they were watching us and taking pictures. And Naomi said, mm, mm, I think there's going to be more to this story. And, and sure enough, there sure was. Sure enough. Uh, so, Beth, in uh, before we... Uh, close. I have two questions uh, that I always like to ask uh, authors. What's the book that changed your life? Oh, um, gosh, the book. You mean the book that I read that changed my life? Yep. Oh, well, when I was a little girl, my favorite book was Harriet the Spy by Louise Fitzhugh. Do you mm, remember that book? I sure do. Because uh, I was kind of a tomboy and was a bit of an introvert, but I love to watch people. And so that that book really kind of made it okay. And I used to like hide in this little stand of lilac bushes at the end of my my street. You could get in the middle, nobody could see you and sort of watch and take <laughs> notes on what was going on in the neighborhood. And so that was like, you know, I, I think about that little girl being um, sort of junior reporter. <laughs> and doesn't, <laughs> and don't then. you think Harriet reminded, you know, made you um, 
made you realize that girls could be strong and independent? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And they could be asking the ones asking the questions and the ones making the decisions. And I never even put together that the, uh, the hero of true mind is also named Harriet. Yeah. (laughs) That's an important name for me. That's right. Um, And, and what do you, what's currently, what are you currently reading? Oh gosh, I'm actually reading two books right now. One, I can't remember the title, but it's the first novel by the guy who wrote, um, a man named Ove, which was wonderful. Did you, have you read that yet? I have not, but lots it's, of our customers it's wonderful. have. wonderful. Um, and then I just finished Ann Patchett's new book, Commonwealth. Commonwealth. Didn't she do a yeah. great job? Yeah, she does. She does a wonderful job. I yeah. just fall into her stories. They had a lot of characters. I wasn't sure I could keep up with them all at the beginning, but she, of course, pulls it off. And she always has. She just has those lines that zing you that that are forever stuck in your head, and. Um, I'm also reading Christina Baker Klein's new book about uh, sort of a fish, fictional takeoff of the Andrew Wyeth famous painting that he did. Oh, um, yeah. And I'm, enjoy, I'm enjoying that a lot, too. We're reading Trevor Noah's new memoir, which is called Born a Crime, and it's quite good. I'm loving it. I'm reading that also, and I think he did a fantastic job. Yeah, and you can tell he wrote it because it sounds like him, right? Yeah, like, it does. So many of these famous people, their their ghostwriters write it, but he definitely wrote it. He's, and what a brilliant really title. A, I know. He's, he's impressive. Yeah. I, really it made impressive. me like him even more. I mean, I, I, I've I liked him. I, ha- I I haven't been addicted to him the way I was to Jon Stewart. But yeah, me it's too. making mm-hmm. me want to watch him more after having read that book. He's just a he, – he just seems smart and thoughtful mm-hmm. and funny and, kind. Mm-hmm. and brave and brave. Yeah, yeah. And just he's one of those people that grew up, you know, he couldn't leave the house with his parents because he wasn't supposed to be there, a person of whiter skin in the township. Yeah, exactly. And so he spent a lot of time alone reading, observing people around him. And, um, yeah, I'm boy. liking that also. You know what I forgot to ask you? Is it true that there's a movie adaption of True Vine already underway? Yeah, it's actually being negotiated right now, so I'm not allowed to talk in detail about it, but I'll just say oh, it's you just probably us, read it. Beth. It's, it's <laughs> been widely reported that Leonardo DiCaprio wants to uh, attached to um, a movie and is interested in the story and, and, and had actually long been a fan of, of George and Willie Muse and had, I guess, um, had read about them before, which is interesting. Yeah, that really is interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, that would be another honor just to have that story be more widely told. Think of all the millions that would come to it that maybe wouldn't have read the book and just another way to get that history out there that's so relevant today. Well, Beth, I want to thank you for being on Just the Right Book. And I particularly want to thank you for writing books and telling stories in such a compelling way that inform us. I think they really can, both books can really both Factory Man and True Vine can really change the way people think. And in the meantime, they're having a great time reading a great book. So, <laughs> Oh, that is so kind. I mean, that's my goal. I'm, I'm trying to figure these things out myself and trying to, like, tell people what I've seen and witnessed and hopefully have them feel the same emotions that I experienced when I was learning these new things. I mean, that's always the goal. It's a, and that's a wonderful thing about being a reporter is you get to go out and you get to kind of, you're this paid, you get paid to get a, almost like a graduate degree in whatever mm-hmm. you're interested in. And then not only that, you get to then tell it to others. And 
there's always this moment where I feel like I'm like almost pregnant with the story, you know, and I'm it really excited. How can I tell this in a way that's going to make the hair stand up on the back of my reader's neck the way it did mine? And so I, I just that's a real privilege to get to do that. Well, so mission accomplished. You. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, Beth, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Just the Right Book. I look forward to our meeting one day. Oh, me too. It was a real privilege. If you ever wanted to work in a bookstore like R.J. Julia's but weren't exactly sure if you have the chops for it, then this next segment is for you. I am thrilled to have a very special guest in the studio today. Lori Fazio has been the general manager of R.J. Julia for over five years, and she's been with the store for nine I am incredibly lucky to have her there since she's the one who takes care of everything and makes sure the train's running on time. And now she's on Just the Right Book. So, Lori, welcome. Thank you. I think a lot of people think they want to be a bookseller because they think of the idea, oh boy, I'm going to be in this building with all these books and I'm going to get to read and this is going to be the perfect job. What is it that really being a bookseller entails? Well, those first thoughts is exactly what I thought. <laughs> so when I started, that's what I, I came in thinking. I know a lot about books. I can't wait to be able to read more. And then within five minutes, I realized I don't really know anything. <laughs> and And you learn. And so being a bookseller is... Expanding your mind, um, listening to people, listening to the people that you work with as well as the customers that come in, um, and just really being able to take the information that's given to you and, you know, go further with it as far as you want, really. You can go as far as you want. And do you think um, that your reading has changed since you're a bookseller? In other words, do you not finish as many books? Do you read more? Do you read less? Yes, to all <laughs> of that. Um, I I really don't like when I can't finish a book, but because we're constantly reading, um, it's the job that you're reading to supply just the right book to the customer. There are things that if I don't think it's really worthy that I'm going to want to recommend, I have to put it down. And I may tell myself I'll get back to it someday. But really? But I usually don't, sadly. Um, but if it doesn't, you know, catch me that, that it's the right thing, then, you know, it probably isn't, you know, the right thing for me to get back to anyway. Yeah, because I have found in the, you know, I've been at the bookstore for almost 27 years. I find I read more, but I finish less. Yes, I, I read more and finish less as well. But I read way more. You know, I thought I was a big reader back in the day, and now, and not only am I a bigger reader, but my genres have expanded. Yeah. And I, you know, I thought I liked one thing, and I don't even know that I go near those books anymore. And I, I'm open-minded to all kinds of books, and I'm thankful for that. Yeah. I mean, that to me is like one of the best parts. You see a book come in, you think, I don't really read science fiction, and then you love it, or yeah. you don't really read a graphic novel or history or whatever, and then all of a sudden you're doing it. That's right. So what would you say to somebody who said, oh, my dream is to be a bookseller? Come in with an open mind and be prepared to work more than you even <laughs> think you would. <laughs> it's 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 work, and one of and as you know, 
you know, we are, we're salespeople, which means we have to get the right thing to the right person. So we might love a book, but you can't recommend that same book to every single body that walks in the building. So what skills does somebody who wants to be a bookseller need? They need to be able to multitask, even though I'm not a big fan of that word. Yeah. Um, They need to be able to listen to what the customer really wants uh, and point them in the right direction. And if you don't know the exact book to recommend, to be able to find the right person who works at the store that can recommend them that book. And they need to be able to um, juggle a lot of information at any given moment. Right. And, you know, one of the things that you and I have talked about a lot in the store is the ability to engage somebody so somebody comes into the store, and at RJ Joya's, we don't like to say, can we help you? Mm-hmm. We like to say, are you finding what you need? Because sometimes people feel like they can come in and look around, which of course they can, and they think they'll find what they want. But the skill of knowing how to engage a customer so you really have an understanding of what they're looking for is a skill that I think you and I have learned is not so easy for some people. How do you help them learn that? I give them tools and um, not not a script, but give them ideas of how to start an open-ended question with someone. Um, If they come in and if, if you're really uncomfortable, you can, if they have like a child with them, you can in the child has a soccer shirt on, you can even just open up the conversation, you know, saying, oh, did you just come from a soccer game? And then just just talk. You know, everybody who works for us at the store loves books. So once they can find a way to open up with a book mm-hmm. or some sort of a recommendation, they usually um, can settle in and, and feel at ease. And do you think that um, working in the bookstore has changed you outside the bookstore? That's an interesting question. I think that I I still view the world the way that I have in the past. Mm-hmm. I think, if anything, it makes me want to suggest um, people thinking outside their comfort zone, mm-hmm. whether it's reading or something else. Mm-hmm. And I know, for example— my mother is a prime example. You know, she likes to read a certain genre. And of course, I, you know, I'll, I get her those books. I buy her those books for Christmas or her birthday. But I always push her to try something else. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's because I've expanded myself that way. And so if someone gives me an open door to do that, I will do that. But other than that, I think retail, I appreciate it. I appreciate other businesses and, you know, the people that are working there for sure, um, especially, you know, during the holidays and, you know, busier times. Um, But I still look at the world the same way. You know, because one of the things that I, I mean, I just made up that question as we were talking, but one of the things that I think that I've learned is, A, I don't. Maybe you can judge a book by its cover, but I don't think you can judge people Mm-mm. by how they look. You know, you could get the punky-looking kid with the piercings and the green hair come in, and they want the most classical kind of book. And you get yes. an older woman who looks like she might want romance, and in fact, she's reading some edgy kind of fiction. But the other thing that I've been struck by, and I think you'll remember the story, Lori. Do you remember a couple of years ago, we had a woman, an older woman who got faint. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't remember if she fell down or was falling down and we had her in a chair and she was really embarrassed mm-hmm. that she was in that 
position. We got her water. We called uh, 911 to make sure she was okay. Because if I remember, she was in her 90s. Yes. And and by herself, I believe. Exactly. She was by herself. And then as we got to talk to her, we realized that she had been the first woman at a college who had graduated with a degree in physics. And she was a not only very accomplished, but had won all these awards. And I love the idea that as we talk to customers, we get to see them in a more multidimensional way without getting personal. You know, we're not, although sometimes people are coming in and they're asking for a book because they've been diagnosed with an illness or they've lost somebody. So we do end up with those kinds of conversations. But I love the idea that we have a fuller view of who the people are. Yes. The diversity is is fantastic and what people like to read and what they don't always want to admit they like to read is is always fun. Um and I, I agree with you on that. That's a it's a great part of the day. So two last questions. Would you encourage somebody to become a bookseller? Of course I would. <laughs> And they could come work for you. <laughs> well, you know, they would have to come and interview. And But of course I would. I mean, if you enjoy reading and you enjoy um, recommending what you read and you share with your friends or you share with the people around you what you like to read, then it could be the right place for you. So tell me about, tell us about the book that you're crazy about now, because I know there's one that you can't stop talking about. Well, lately right now, it's a book called... Um, the Women in the Castle. It comes out in January. Ooh. Yes. So this is something that um, it takes you to um, around World War II, and you get these three women who are very different, and you know they have backstories, and I'm still learning what the backstories are. Fiction. It's fiction. Yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, you're finding there's always another aspect when I read a historical fiction book. Um, and I read a lot of World War II historical fiction. There's always another aspect that I'm that I'm learning. So tell me the name of the book again. The Women in the Castle. Ooh, I like yes. that. And how about a book that's out now that you're loving? News of the World. Mm. Yes. News of the World is, um, it's, a, it's a little book. It's fiction as well. This takes place right after the Civil War in America. It's in Texas, and it's about a retired Army captain who literally goes through Texas on his horse and with his horse and his cart, and he goes to these little towns, and everybody in the town who wants to listen pays 10 cents to get in where he is, and he tells them, he reads to them the news of the world. They're learning what's going on in Paris and what's going on in Italy, and he's, you know, sharing. But at one of his sessions, one of the um, the locals comes to him and has a little girl who's 11, and she has been rescued back. Um, the past four years, she had been living with, um, with Indians, with a tribe, and her family had been uh, murdered, and they asked him to deliver her to the very bottom of Texas, to her other family, her aunt and uncle. And it's about their journey. You get a little, you know, adventure along the way, mm. and it's it, she doesn't remember English, so how they communicate and how her English comes back, and um, just their relationship. It's, it's a beautiful—it's one of the nicest stories I've read in a long time, but there's plenty of action in there as well. Well, we need nice stories we these do. days. We definitely do. Lori, wh- one other question— what kind of crazy request do you get with people coming in the store that is sort of like us trying to solve a puzzle? 
We get that a lot. We get customers coming in and they have a, a portion of the title or... Or the it, wrong title. Or the wrong title. And sometimes they'll even point to a place in the store and they'll say it was right on this table. One that stands out is, you know, several years back, the, the book Three Cups of Tea was very popular. Mm-hmm. And we were we really couldn't, you know, keep it on the shelf. That's everybody wanted to read it. And a customer came in and this was sort of at the, not the tail end, but when things were trailing off just a little bit. And they literally said the letter T was in the title. And I said, the letter T? And they they didn't know much about it. And I, you know, at that point, you just have to ask questions. And we love those challenges. And then it's always fun when we can send them out with the book that they've actually. Yeah. And sometimes they'll say it was reviewed in the New York Times. It really it was an ad in the New York Times. Right. And sometimes they'll literally say it had done the title and it was blue. That's right. And then we just have to go from there. So, Laura, if I wanted to get a job in book selling and I'm, you know, anywhere in the country, how would you recommend somebody start? There is an industry newsletter um, called Shelf Awareness, and you you could certainly go on to shelfawareness.com slash job board. And they have listings throughout the country of places that are looking for all kinds of things. And it could be in the publishing world. It could be in the bookselling world. Um, but that would be a great place to look. And of course, you could walk into your local bookstore and see if they're looking or file an application. Absolutely. We're always looking for great booksellers. That's right. Well, Lori, I... I'm delighted, of course, that you've joined us on Just the Right Book. And then Lori and I sit next to each other at the bookstore. (laughs) So we spend a lot of time together. So I'll see you in the store. Sounds great. Thanks, Laura. And for a complete list of books that we talked about today, please go to bookpodcast.com. Also, please email us at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com. Remember to subscribe to us on iTunes and rate and review us for a chance to win Beth Macy's book, True Vine. Just the Right Book is produced by Collisions, a division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman, and many thanks to our producer, Christina Torres, and our sound engineer, Pat Keogh. Thank you all for listening.